Celebrating female role models across our community live from Marceline College in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to Be Like Her Live on Marceline Live. Welcome everyone. Live from Marceline College in Melbourne, Australia, you're listening to Be Like Her Live on Marceline Live. My name is Alex Chung and my co-hosts today are Declan Braniff and Josh McCraith. Our special guest today is quite distinguished, Karen Livingstone, uh, Head of Fundraising and Development at Women Can and CEO slash co-founder um, of Avarian Cancer Australia. G'day, Karen. Hi, how show. are you going? Thank you for having me. Um, so I know you've just been talking to us about it, but could you describe for the audience here what your role is and what, what you do? Yeah, sure. So um, I was the co-founder of Ovarian Cancer Australia and former CEO of Ovarian Cancer Australia. Um, I guess primarily I see myself as being an ovarian cancer advocate. Um, I also, um, in my professional life, I'm the head of fundraising and development for uh, Women Can, which is the public-facing um, brand of an organisation called the Australia New Zealand Gynaecological Oncology Group. Um, and we have 1,200 um, members around the country and also in New Zealand um, who all work in gynaecological oncology. Um, they could be clinicians, they could be nurses, they could be radiologists right across um, the board. And what we do um, is that uh, we undertake clinical research um, in gynecological cancer, um, which is really important because we know that, uh, um, you know, women, there are 6,600 women in Australia who are diagnosed with a gynecological cancer um, every year. What's been the impact of your role um and your founding of this uh, the company or okay, organisation. So, yeah, so it's a not-for-profit. Um, so it's a charity, effectively. So um, uh, I guess what happened for us was that um, my, my aunt was firstly diagnosed with ovarian cancer um, back in um, 1993, I think it was. Um, and we never knew it ran in families. And so um, my mum had also had some gynecological surgery and thought that everything had been taken care of. Um, and unfortunately, um, women of her era didn't know a lot about the gynecological reproductive area. And so um, when my aunt was diagnosed, um, uh, it, she was diagnosed at stage four. She was operated on, she was closed up and then sent to a specialist to be operated on. Um, stage four is basically terminal. Uh, so she underwent a massive operation and women with ovarian cancer do. It's about a nine, it can be up to about a nine hour operation, um, where they try to take as much as they can in terms of the reproductive parts, but also, um, as much cancer as they can actually see. And then they would typically send a woman on for chemotherapy to kill what they can't see through surgery. Um, I think the biggest impact was in the year 2001, when we first founded the organization, um, there was no public information about ovarian cancer whatsoever. So we, we, as well as others, didn't know that it ran in families, 
didn't know what the symptoms were and the symptoms are actually quite vague so it does make it very difficult to diagnose. There is no early detection test, there is no screening test um, and really um, in fact the, it was World Ovarian Cancer Day last week on Mother's Day and they put out a report that said um, it actually takes eight months to diagnose a woman with ovarian cancer and that is because they're presenting and they're presenting with very vague symptoms um, and no one is investigating it to see whether it's ovaries. So in that time, the cancer has continued to grow and spread to other vital organs and most women are either diagnosed at stage three or stage four where um, full recovery is very difficult. In fact, it's a 48% um, of women survive to five years. So... What do you think since starting that and obviously where you are today, what do you think your biggest challenges were going through, you know, raising awareness and stuff? What were the biggest, you know, boundaries and and biggest blocks that you had to Mm. jump over in order to get there? That is a great question. Um, I think one of the biggest uh, challenges that we've had is that um, women uh, falsely believe that the what was once known as the pap test, which is now called cervical screening, they believe that uh, that is covering them for everything gynecological. Um, And so there's a false sense of security that women have. um, And often women will say, oh, no, that's okay, I've had my my test. It's like, well, actually there is no test. Um, So that's been a really big um, hurdle and challenge is to actually educate women as to um, what um, you know, what what the disease is, and what they need to look for. It seems like a like a, an area of science and medical science that is so underdeveloped and under researched. How do you feel being the the like a, a massive stride in that in that sense? And what traits and qualities do you see yourself employing to further that just like question mark? Yeah. Um, so um, before I started working uh, for ANSCOG, um, I actually was on the board for 10 years mm-hmm. um, and I was the first consumer that had ever um, engaged with um, the organisation and its members. Um, and in, that, in, in those times, I guess it was around about 2007, um, you know, doctors were kind of on an elevation and everyone didn't question them because they, you know, they – they were um, the experts. Mm. And so what they wanted to do was to actually bring consumers, it's not a great word, but we don't really have a description, but Mm. um, a better description, but people who have had a lived experience of the disease. Um, And so the idea was that they wanted to bring consumers in to meet their members and to start to understand, you know, from a researcher's perspective, they can look at it from the science but they also need to look at it from the quality of life mm. um, and also the psychological impact that it haps, happens on patients as well. So I came in um, and uh, joined the board a year later and really I think what my role has, because I'm not, I'm not uh, trained um, in science, mm. um, I'm actually a consumer. Um, I was a former businesswoman um, and this has become totally my my focus so I'm not trained in science but what I learned very quickly was to learn and to listen um, and to take the science and to understand the concept of what they're trying to achieve 
and then being able to be the conduit to go back to consumers and explain without going through the science, explain what they're trying to achieve. And the really big interesting point about that is when you um, when you tell a person uh, who's not trained in science mm. too much information and it's very becomes very threatening. Like if you tell a woman, you know, copious amounts of information about ovarian cancer, they're more likely to stick their head in the sand and go, I don't want to know about it. And I can tell you I've had so many people say, oh, I wouldn't want to know whether I genetically are predisposed. And yet it, it's really powerful to know whether you have a susceptibility. Now you talked about the challenges of trying to – get the message out and raise awareness. Now, as for you personally, in your um, pursuit of that, did you face any challenges, um, especially regarding um, being an ambitious woman um, and how in society that often may be looked down upon or have a certain stereotype associated with it? Um, I actually wouldn't classify myself as an ambitious woman. I'm a determined woman. I think that's a really strong um, definition. And I think for me um, it was I was on a mission and that actually mirrored in my life as well because what we found with my mum and her sister is there was a genetic link and that, then that was tested and uh, we – um, three of our family also found that they had the gene, which puts us at higher risk. So I was on a mission and um, I personally believe I'll open any door and people can judge me how they want to judge me, but when I open that door, I've got a message I want to deliver um, and you know, if people want to judge me uh, in in poor light, then that's really about them. It's not about me. Um, I like I said, I've got a goal, and I'm determined. And the more doors I can open, and the more opportunities like today that I've got to tell, um, you know, the better it, it, the better it is. And where did these personal qualities of determination? And, um, <laughs> where did it come from? Was, was there a role model in your life, or mm. someone maybe in the um, Maybe not personally. Maybe it could be um, someone in the political sphere who inspired you to do what do what you do. Um, yeah. Look, growing up, I had a um, a very interesting. Um, my sister was an elite athlete. Um, she was a uh, three time Olympian in swimming, and so I watched a lot of what she did and her discipline um, and I was always in awe of everything that she achieved um, and I guess from my point of view that I grew up in that kind of disciplined um, environment but I've always um, I guess I've always taken uh, role models who want to give back and who want to make change and who want to who want um, uh, society to be better. And I guess the work that I do is because I don't want women to die of ovarian cancer. And if it was up to me, I'd want to save every woman in the world. Um, you know, you can't always do that. And that is one of the challenges that you have, that you lose women along the way. Um, and that can be very difficult. Um, but, yeah, I think the really important thing is that, um, you know, uh, you take you take bits from every woman that you meet, I think. And I, I didn't have one role model. I, look, my mum was fantastic. She 
Um, she worked very hard um, and she uh, was an amazing woman in terms of raising us and, you know, raising an elite athlete is no mean feat. Um, and, you know, she gave everything to her family and I'd like to think that I've given everything to my two children as well. Um, so, you know, talking about how you want to, you know, try and save every woman possible, do you ever have self-doubts and, and have you ever had self-doubts along the way of your journey and what you've been trying to achieve? Um, I think you always have self-doubt. Um, you know, you can be overwhelmed. Um, but I think uh, when you know that it's honourable what you're doing and you know that you've got a passion for something, I think you can pursue that um, and everything else fades away, um, particularly, you know, if you really keep your focus on things. Mm-hmm. Talking about the qualities and the values you talk about and your life experiences feels like a superhero's walk kind of <laughs> stepped into the room. And, you know, I think traditionally young young men and, and tend to have adult men as role models. Do you mm. feel there's, there's a barrier or a link between why any other young person, young men can't have you as a role model? Um, well, can I just say that um, – Whilst I have an interest in ovarian cancer, I also lost my husband 12 years ago to pancreatic cancer. Um, And we talk about ovarian cancer being 48% survival. Pancreatic is actually 9% survival. Um, And so I had a 10-and-a-half-year-old boy and a 14-year-old girl. And I really believe he's like now 22. I really believe if you said to him, who is your role model, he would actually say my mum and I'm really proud of her for everything that she's achieved. The greatest gift I had was um, uh, in uh, 2008 I was actually a finalist in the Victorian Australian of the Year um, and I was able to uh, bring my children along as well. And for me it was the first time that they got to see all the times that mum was up late, all the times that mum was at meetings and I couldn't do things with them, they got to see the importance of the work that um, I had undertaken. Um, and then for the following year, in 2019, um, I was awarded um, a Medal of the Order of Australia. Again, my children got to see how important the work was that we were undertaking and how important it because, you know, genetically – they also could have a predisposition to ovarian cancer. Now, I know that sounds, um, you know, from a, a male point of view, but a male can actually hand it down to to mm. their children as well. Did you find being, you know, you were talking about how, you know, sometimes it was looked at as the doctors know everything and when you're on the board it's a bit different. Do you find how you said you had no sort of training and you, you told us before, before we were on air, that you didn't actually go to university to study about ovarian cancer? Did you sort of find that that was almost a barrier that you had to overcome? Did people ever look at you and go, oh, well, she doesn't know, she hasn't done the training we've done? Did you did you find that? Um, no, not at all. No. Um, and, in fact, I it wasn't just that I hadn't studied science. I actually didn't go to tertiary education. Um, so um, when I founded an organisation, I did that on my own skills. Um, and I think that's really important because um, I chose to work straight out of school um, 
And I think that my first maybe two to three years at work, I learned more about life than I did. Obviously, being in a um, in a, a, a tertiary, uh, sorry, in a in a school environment. So um, I had to rely on myself um, and my skills. And no, they didn't um, pass judgment on me because I've got a lived experience, and that's what they valued. Did you? Uh, do you think in today's society in 2022 it's just as possible to not go and do a tertiary education and do exactly what you did or do you think it's it's a little bit harder to to do that? Um, I would encourage everyone to pursue um, what's what suits them. Um, I know that it's not for everybody mm. but that doesn't mean that they won't find their own place in the world and find what they're comfortable and what they can be successful um, about. Um you know, I guess from my point of view, um, uh, I guess I was probably because I didn't go to tertiary um, that, you know, I was probably less likely to succeed um, amongst my peers. But um, I think life actually um, unveils and, and unflows as it's meant to. Yep. What advice do you have for a, a young person who might be experiencing self-doubt, um, especially in the face of, you know, the pressures of needing to enter career paths and, you know, go beyond high school? Um, I think it's really important to um, – uh, I think it's really important to uh, look at what it is that um, that you uh, want to do um, and uh, – can you repeat that question for me? Sorry. <laughs> so if yeah, young people are – who are experiencing self-doubt. Yeah, in- that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, being a mother of uh, two 20-somethings, um, I guess, you know, I understand from a um, from a perspective of uh, self-doubt um, in, you know, finishing school and looking forward and thinking where am I going to go. I would just say that um, I think there's incredible pressure for kids when they finish high school to or secondary college to work out what it is that they want to do. I'd actually say take your time, um, you know, go and experience some life and then come back to what it is that you want to do. I think when you've, when you've experienced uh, a little bit of life, it becomes clearer where, where you fit and where you need to go. Um, in terms of self self-doubt, um, I would encourage um, people to reach out and to talk because I think communication is, is the best key in terms of being able to work through um, any anxiety that they have or any, any doubts. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Be Like Her Live on Marcel and Live, live from Marcel and College in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Alex Chung and my co-hosts today are Declan Braniff and Josh McCraith. Our special guest today is Karen Livingstone, and we're talking about role models. And you yourself, to me, seem like quite the role model. How do you inspire? How do you feel that you can inspire other people and push for on other people's behalf? Well, I guess everything I do, I push on behalf of women with ovarian cancer and families um, who have experienced um, ovarian cancer. But I think, um, you know, I think uh, role model. Um, look, I, I'd like to think that I've, you know, have a positive impact on everyone that I meet. 
Um, I have mentored some people um, through their journeys early in career and they are more people maybe in a not-for-profit setting um, and learning about charity and um, how to communicate things. Um, I, I, I'd be really um, quite humbled to think that I've had impact on people's lives and their, and their professional life as well. In regards to uh, obtaining your your position of obtaining the funds for mm. ovarian cancer, how does it feel like uh, you leading that charge? Do you feel that you being a woman affects that in any particular way? Or do you feel like there's any pushback because from from a gender perspective? Yes, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, no, I guess um, I'm in a little bit of a different role because I'm gynecological cancer and, mm. um, and you know, coming from a woman's perspective, um, I can convey it quite um, succinctly. But I think, you know, we have men working with us as well um, in our organisation um, and I think that, you know, um, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's. I don't think there's barriers mm. to gender, um, with regards from a fundraising perspective. Mm. Definitely, I think um, what I do is I knock on doors to try to find funding yes. so that we can undertake further research into the gynecological cancers. Mm. And I think if someone um, has a mindset of giving, then they'll listen to you. Um, and as long as you can convey and you can tell your story, I mean, fundraising is very much about storytelling. It's about being able to tell, um, you know, what the situation is now and what do you want it to be in the future and how they can help. So you bring mm -hmm. people along on the journey. And I don't think that's gender-based. So other than yourself and, and you know, maybe your family as well, who are some other great female role models that young males could try and emulate? Sure. Um, Julia Gillard. Really? Really. First female prime minister in Australia. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, um, you know, she, if you look into Julia Gillard, um, being the first uh, woman prime minister, she got a lot of things thrown at her. Mm, diversity. She, oh, well, not the, so much the, the, like the challenges, the challenges, but also the the um, the doubt that was put onto her, mm. um, and some of the messaging that went out about her being a prime minister um, would not have been acceptable if it had been a man. Mm. But she was resilient, and she had strong belief, um, and she believed that she could make a difference. And I think that. Um, any young man, if you go and research um, Julia Gillard throughout um, her period of time, and it was very short um, as a um, as a prime minister, she had to overcome a lot of scepticism and you know really horrible um, messaging that was thrown at her. Um, and I think the resilience for me is what shone. And mm. continues to shine through because she's continuing um, her work in in um, in education space. Yeah. In 2022, do you feel like if she ran again, um, would it be different? Do you feel like society has changed and the cultural values have evolved so that it would be more acceptable for, um, in the eyes of the Australian people, um, for there to be a woman prime minister? I think that's a great question because I do I do honestly 
honestly believe that it would be different. I think, you know, where uh, it it's um, May and we're going through an election um, period of time and I think when you look at um, some of the key messaging that's coming through at the moment, um, I think we've I, – I, in some ways we've moved forward in a leap and then in some ways we've taken one or two steps backwards. And I think that if Julia Gillard was standing now, I think women would have a greater voice about how she was treated and they would stand up. And I think we've all seen the march that happened in um, Canberra and I think that that and with Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame, I think they were really seminal moments in terms of women and women's voices being heard. Just one last question for you. What are you personally proudest of and in all your achievements? Um, I would actually say being a mother. That's the one of the greatest joys for me is that um, I've raised two amazing young people who, um, you know, can stand up for themselves. They know right from wrong um, and they're living their life on their terms the way they want to and that particularly because we had gone through the situation with my husband um, passing away 12 years ago, uh, we've all come such a far, a long way and and come overcome many obstacles because of that. Um, I think that's my greatest work. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for our guest, Karen, for coming in and giving such a, a broad array of opinions and interesting uh, viewpoints. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Live from Marsland College in Melbourne, Australia, you've been listening to Be Like Her live on Marsland Live. My name is Alex Chung and my co-hosts today were Declan Braniff and Joshua McCraith. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you found the information useful. Until next time, have a great day. Across our neighbourhood and across the world, you're listening to Be Like Her live on Marsland Live. 